want to introduce myself. I'm Trenton Evans, older brother, but you probably know Evan a lot better than me, so it's like I'm, I'm known through association now. Uh, and I'm a pastoral apprentice with Church 101. I've been part of Church 101 for several years. I'm not quite sure how many years, so I'll just a couple to several years. But anyways, as I was getting ready to come out here this morning, uh, I was explaining to my, my daughters that I wouldn't be with them at the, the South Shore gathering. It's just kind of weird because like, it's actually Jordan that's going to be preaching in the South Shore, and I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be in the West Island, which is really cool. It makes it feel like Church 21 is like everywhere on Sundays. So I, I was celebrating that. Uh, and they're like, where are you going to be, though? Um, and I, I told them, like, well, I'm going to go to NDG. That's where Jordan's church is. I'm going to go to, like, downtown. And then I'm going to go to West Island. And, and Lily's like, my, my oldest daughter, who's eight, she's like, oh, that's not very much. And I was like, okay, thanks for, for understanding. And then she's like, well, I guess I'd probably lose my voice. I was like, ah, oh. she's, like, relating to me. If I did five... And I was like, what? <laughs> There's like, where did all this sass come from, from a little eight-year-old? But it's like, it, it was a perfect little introduction because it, it gets into the conversation of like, do you feel like your family, those closest to you, can relate to you, basically? Or do you feel like sometimes that you're just completely misunderstood uh, by those who are closest to you, those who are your family uh, or your friends that are so close that you call them family, basically? Um, I've, I've seen... Uh, in my, my short life here on earth and, and lots of media things that often it looks like, uh, you know, the, those closest to us kind of want to plan out your whole life. They, you're, it's either your parents or the people that are the most invested into your life. They basically, uh, so it could be your siblings, your aunts, your uncles, whoever it is, whomever, uh, They've decided what school you're going to go to. They've decided what your belief system should be. Uh, they, they want to be involved in all those little decisions that you make in your life. And if you don't live perfectly in line with your family's expectations or your, you know, your loved one's expectations, all of a sudden, you're going to get this label of like black sheep put on you. You're like the black sheep. You didn't meet, you didn't meet our expectations. Now you've brought disgrace on us all. And it's like, <clears throat> there's this, I guess, I don't know. Can anyone relate to this in a, even a small way? Yes, that's right. And so just to give an example, there's probably some guy, maybe not here, but probably like definitely somewhere in Canada that's like been totally disowned by his family because he like invested all of his SERB benefits into GameStop uh, before, like GameStop stock. And he's like still holding and he's like, guys, can you just loan me a bit of money to get like food? And they're like, no, we don't want to talk to you anymore. We don't endorse what you've done with your money. And now don't ever, like you've brought disgrace on us with your wild investment decisions. And like, it honestly doesn't take much. Sometimes it's just like a, a change of hairstyle. Like, you know, you want to try something crazy, you dye your hair like gray and your family's like, don't come home. Or like, you know, your brother grows like a mustache and you're like, I don't ever want to see your face again. Or you get a tattoo and it's, it's just like little things. And then the family judgment wagon or train is just completely unleashed. You're like, oh man, you're under all of this. And so when you don't live within you're like these perfect expectations. You get the black, le like black sheep label. And uh, as we're like getting into the passage today, I'm going to be like, I was thinking like, you know, could Jesus possibly be able to relate to this? Is it possible that Jesus, he knows what it feels like to be like, have his family want to disassociate with him and be like having that black sheep labeled like Jesus? Is that possible? Uh, so we're going to get into that. <clears throat> but before we do, uh, I just wanted to 
give a little refresher. In case it's your first week here or, uh, you know, like you missed a week uh, or you fell asleep. You've been here every week, but you constantly fall asleep and you're just like, which book of the Bible are we even in? We are in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, what that means is basically there's this writer and his goal is to point us to Jesus as the promised Savior, uh, the Messiah. And uh, also he wants to show us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And so it's actually understood that Mark, he wasn't like with Jesus when he was doing his ministry. Jesus wasn't, uh, Mark wasn't sitting under Jesus' teaching, uh, but Mark is very intentional about gathering as much information with as much accuracy as possible. Uh, and so he's writing on behalf of Peter, who was with Jesus, who is providing firsthand accounts to Mark. And basically, Mark is using all that information to, to write this book And he's got two very key focuses in his writing. He wants to present to the reader that Jesus is the promised Messiah that they've been waiting for. So these would most likely be like the Jewish readers. Uh, And he also wants to present to the reader what it would look like to be a disciple, studying and learning under Jesus' teaching. And so that's just the... The, the kind of lens that we're looking at this passage today as we look through it. It's, the, it's the, the purpose that Mark wrote it for. And so then we arrive in Mark 3, 31, and we're given a scene where Jesus is teaching and there's a crowd around him. And then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Uh, and so Jesus' family, they came to talk to Jesus, uh, but the crowd was too tight. for the family to get through. Like, I know it's been a while since we've seen a crowd that's so tight that you can't, like, walk through it, but just imagine, like, back in those days, I don't know if it was, like, a, I don't know, a festival or a concert where, like, literally you're there and you're like, well, I know, like, my family's over there, but I'm stuck here, so we'll meet each other up later. Like, it's, like, too tight, and so what did the family do? They just passed the message along. So, like, if it was someone wanting to talk to me, let's imagine it's, like, it's a packed house today, and uh, someone has to tell Steve, uh, Stephen, like, okay, I need to get this message to Trenton, then he talks to Evan, then Michelle, then Dwight, and then someone from the front row, I don't know any of your names, but you come and whisper to me and be like, okay, so-and-so in the back wants to talk to you. So that's, that's what's happening here. So the message, it works its way through the crowd, and then the crowd who's sitting around Jesus told him, hey, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside for you. And so the, the message has been passed to the crowd, and honestly, already, there's something really interesting to, to take note of here with this crowd. They have a very different posture in regards to being around Jesus than the crowd that we saw in uh, Mark, uh, uh, sorry, in Mark um, 3, 9. That was just a couple weeks ago, okay? In Mark 3, 9, what was the crowd like? Does anyone remember? This was the crowd that wanted to get healed by Jesus. What was their posture around Jesus? I want to hear an answer. They're pushing, they're shoving, they're selfish, and they were pretty out of hand to the point that Jesus was like, you know, guys, like to his apostles, it's, it's likely that uh, if this really gets out of hand, like I might get crushed. So have a boat, like an escape route ready for me to get away from this crowd uh, if they really get out of hand, because I might be in danger of getting crushed today. And uh, so now we see a completely different posture of the crowd that's around Jesus. They're, they're orderly. They've got some sort of like communication network already established. Right? They're passing messages through the crowd. They're, they're sitting and they're under Jesus' teaching. They're engaging with the idea of becoming disciples of Jesus. And so just to see the contrast, Jesus' healing drew a crowd. And it, that crowd was pretty like out of order. But his teaching brought them under order and respect. 
And uh, so then we have this question, okay? So there's this crowd around Jesus. There's so many people that it's like it's a full house. And his family arrives and they want to talk to him. But why weren't his family already with him? Shouldn't they be his biggest supporters? Why, why did Jesus' family come? So I'm going to ask you that question. Can anyone answer? Why wasn't Jesus' family already sitting there in the crowd with him? Dwight already answered, so you've got, like, your call-a-friend card already used. What, why would the family show up, and, like, why weren't they with Jesus already? They're embarrassed. So there's this sense that they, they're not actually endorsing Jesus' teaching. And so, basically, there's been this news traveling through all the region of, like, stories of Jesus healing people. There's been deliverance of, of like, unclean spirits, or what we'd call demons. Uh, there's crowds forming to the point that, like, you know, Jesus and his, and his disciples, they're not eating properly. Uh, and basically, they've come to the conclusion that Jesus is out of his mind and they have to intervene. Okay, so they're not going to sit with the crowd because it would look like they're endorsing, they're supporting Jesus and his teaching. So they're keeping themselves separate and they're showing up uh, to uh, intervene. And so to understand why the family has this posture, we kind of have to look at a bit of the culture and a bit of the family narrative along the whole, like all that we can learn uh, from Jesus' Jesus's life. And so we know from the very, very beginning, Jesus and his relationship with his family would not be a very ordinary one. The angel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to have a son. She's like, how is this possible? Like, I'm a virgin. Like, how am I going to have a son? And it's like, no, this is going to be the son of God. This is going to be the Messiah, the one that will deliver uh, all of the people. And this has been God's plan all along. Uh, and, and you've been chosen to be his mother. And, G- and Mary's like, uh, let it happen to me as you have said. So there's that, there's that buy-in. She's accepting to, go, to fall under God's will without fully comprehending what it would really look like. And then just imagine like a skipping stone. The next time in this family narrative that that stone like hits the water is when Jesus is 12 years old, okay? And Jesus gets left behind at the temple in Jerusalem. And so for three days, his family's like looking for him. And then they finally find him and he's sitting with the teachers in the temple of uh, Jerusalem. And his family's astonished. And Mary says, son, why have you treated us like this? Uh, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And so 12-year-old Jesus, he answers, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? So when Jesus said this, his parents, they didn't understand what he was saying. And so you see this connection back to what Mary had already been told. She had accepted that God had a will and a plan for Jesus' life. And she was going to be supporting Jesus in that will and plan. Mary had already said, let it happen as you have said uh, to the angel. But in reality, she didn't understand what it would really look like. And so Jesus, at 12 years old, he's saying uh, that his life has to be about his father, about God's business. It's, he's not going to be about Joseph's business. He's not going to be a carpenter his whole life. Uh, but in the time... Family connections, family ties, that's where you fit in, into the culture, into a group of people. And so now we're in Jesus' ministry, and we see his family's not with him. It means that they don't support him, they don't endorse him. Uh, and we can even see, I'm going to give you like a little spoiler for Mark 6.3, so we're going to hear it in a couple weeks. But Jesus, in his love and desire to like pursue his family, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And again, the family is not sitting around him. They're not with him. And this is what the people say, because their lens of, of you know, should we listen to this guy or not, is 
is his family with him. And so they say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended. They saw that all of Jesus' family were not with Jesus, not sitting under his teaching. So they're like, we should, we should take offense because he's not endorsed. He's not supported by his family, uh, even though Jesus was going in and still pursuing them. Uh, and so the, that's basically what we're getting to is the fact that the family of Jesus was not with him meant that like, they did not support his teaching uh, and that this is what the crowds are processing. There's people sitting under Jesus' teaching, but they're noticing like, why, why aren't any of his family here with us? Um, and it's, this is especially relevant when Jesus goes to his hometown. So why now? Why now in this whole narrative are the family showing up uh, and, and trying to talk to Jesus? And I, I believe it's exactly the same plan as before. In Mark 3, 21, we already saw uh, that his family heard about everything he was doing. He was going without food. And they, sent, they set out to restrain him uh, because they said he's out of his mind. So they had a goal. They wanted to stop Jesus and restore the family honor in their area, in the region. There's like all these rumors going around that Jesus is, in a sense, becoming the black sheep of the family. And they want to like, they want to strain him, stop him, bring him back into order. Uh, and so what, they, what we see here is basically an organized family intervention. And so like, I don't know if you've seen, there's, there was a show a couple years back, it might still be going now, but it was like a big thing, like family interventions. And then everyone was like, this is, the, this is how this works, okay? We have to all talk about what's wrong with our loved one together behind their backs. Then we have to get there in front of us and like, and yell at them. And I hope none of you had to experience a family intervention, but this is like the old-fashioned family intervention. That's the solution that the Jesus family has found. And if we're to understand that the narrative is continuing. We're not just jumping around and back. Uh, basically, if in verse 21, the family was sent and they tried to restrain him because they believed he's out of his mind, and now they're coming back, it's because they weren't successful. They went home, they regrouped, and they brought out the big guns. They brought mom with them this time. And so the crowd is around him. The message has been sent. Your mother, your brother, and your sisters are outside. They're asking for you. And what we get is a shocking response, Okay. In response, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Like, what would that have felt like? <laughs> like, honestly, if you, if you really thought that you were doing the right thing and going and stopping a loved one, and like, let's say like Evan's in the back, and he's like, I got to talk to Trent, and I'm like, who's Evan? I don't even know this person. Like, that would be shocking in today's culture. And I know a lot of times you can like get in your Bible reading, you can read through a passage, be like, hmm, interesting, keep reading. And you don't really understand like what the author is trying to point out here. And so that's what we're really going to try to look at today. Like why would Mark make such an emphasis on this? And so my wife, Lori, she's been doing Bible reading and she just got to the parallel passage in Luke 8.21. So if you're ever interested, you can note that down. You can read it from a different perspective. Um, she got to this passage and she's like, isn't it, isn't it kind of rude that Jesus would say that? And we were talking, I was like, that's what I'm preaching about this Sunday. <laughs> so let me tell you on Sunday. <laughs> uh, but uh, so Lori is not wrong. Uh, this would have been shocking to hear. So let's say you're in the, the room with the, the crowd uh, around Jesus, and Jesus says, like, who are my mother and my brothers? And you're going to hear some, like, <gasps> gasps. Like, how did he, did he say that? And you're going to hear some people, like, whispering, some murmuring. It might get a little shuffled, like, the, like some noise. People are, like, talking to each other. And then there's this big guy in the back that just took a, a drink of water out of his flask, and he, like, spews it everywhere. He's like, ah, oh, what did that, like, did I just hear that right? And... So everyone in the culture would have been carrying this common assumption that 
a family tie equals VIP access, veto powers over someone connected to you. But Jesus is obviously not supporting these assumptions. And uh, just to look at our current culture and why like, we could so easily skip over this is the reality of our family ties today, okay? Honestly, family ties, like once you're an adult, become basically showing up for Christmas, uh, going to weddings and going to funerals and like calling mom and dad and maybe texting your siblings every now and then. And like, I know I'm exaggerating a lot, uh, but what happens is like, especially in Canada, we end up going to different like schools out of province. Uh, we Then we make friends in those like cities and we might get into committed relationships and then we end up being really far away from our family. And so the family ties that we we call like, these, this is our family, are the people that we spend the most time with. And honestly, Sometimes when you look at families, you're like, what happened in their family? Why, like, was there a lot of, like, dysfunction? Like, why is there a kid in BC, a kid in, like, Nova Scotia, and, like, the family unit in, like, Ontario? Like, it's almost like they're making an effort to not live together. So it's not a common expectation today that kids take over the family business. It still happens, but it's not really a huge common expectation. Okay, you're going to take over the family business, study under me your whole life. Uh, oh, are you in a committed relationship? Okay, we're going to start building the foundation uh, like a, of an addition to our house. And uh, if we're not finished by the time you get married, uh, you can finish it uh, with your wife and you'll come live with us. You're gonna, we're going to build a nice addition on the house. You'll live with us and you'll keep the family business going. So that would seem pretty absurd. Maybe it happens sometimes in some cultures, uh, but today it's not really common. But in the days of Jesus, that was completely the expectation. Uh, family ties were so important. Everyone connected to a family unit was expected to defend the family, protect the family honor. And this, <clears throat> when I say like a family unit, this included servants, this included like aunts, uncles, like everyone worked together uh, to, to carry on the family business, protect the family uh, honor, identity, and all of that. And then the importance of family commitment in these days uh, of, of where Jesus was, we're seeing this passage, uh, they were considered almost as important or as important as like practices like keeping the Sabbath. And we just heard a couple weeks ago, like how religious the Jews were about keeping the Sabbath and like why it was so scandalous that Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath. And so they're like this again, he's going against cultural expectations. Uh, in his time, the, basically respecting family identity, honor, that family bubble is like the same level of like spiritual disciplines in the culture, okay? So this is actually not shocking what Jesus is saying. It's again scandalous. He's saying something that goes completely out and against, outside of and against like the, the cultural norms of his time. And so then we hear him saying these scandalous words, who are my mother and my brothers? And just to be clear, he's not, like, he's not attacking his family ties. Uh, he's not disassociating himself from his, his mother and his brothers. Uh, he is using this as an opportunity to teach. And what he is teaching is that, first of all, Family doesn't mean you have like veto access, VIP access to Jesus, but it also doesn't mean that you're automatically in with Jesus. And what does that in mean? Well, um, we'll get to that. But at this moment, when Mary's in the back hearing this like shocking words that Jesus just came out of Jesus' Jesus's mouth, she might be having like a, a flashback to 12-year-old Jesus saying, why are you searching for me? And she's like, okay, hey, what's going on here? Possibly. And uh Basically, Jesus is making a statement along the lines of, I'm about my father's business. Like, you've known this all along. Uh, and my father's business comes first. And so he's not going to put aside or forsake his family, uh, but God comes above all else. 
And so Jesus, he literally had to experience family rejection so that he could fulfill the will of God for you and fulfill the will of God that was the purpose he was on earth. And so Jesus' family, they're not already disciples of Jesus. You might have assumed they were. You might have thought, like, of course, they, they've known along who Jesus was. Like, growing up, Jesus never sinned. His brothers and sisters were like, oh, he's perfect. He must be the Messiah. Uh, like, anyways, they, but in reality, they're sitting there like, Jesus, why are you treating us like this? Why aren't you, why aren't you the person we thought you were supposed to be? Why aren't you acting the way we thought you were supposed to act? Why, aren't you, why are you destroying our family reputation here in our, in our home and in neighboring cities? And because Jesus is not falling in line into the cultural expectations and the traditions, he's getting that label of being the black sheep in a sense. And so he is face-to-face with this question. What do you do when your family plans, your family's plans and expectation for your life don't line up with God's plans and expectation for your life? And this wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. He didn't just make an offhand remark uh, without thinking about it. He's very intentional. He's cutting to the heart when he addresses this situation that Jesus, he, if he conformed to his family's will, he'd be disobeying God. And so looking around at those in the circle, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Uh, and you might notice that uh, even later he includes sisters, but he never includes one specific title in a family unit. What is that? My mother, brothers, sisters, what's missing? Father. Okay, so Jesus is showing even in this intentional speaking of his words, he, the only person that he can call his father is God the Father. And he is going to take priority over everything. God the Father takes priority over family ties, family traditions, and culture. So what is Jesus making clear in these words? And honestly, just to remind you, Mark, he's always intentional with what he includes in the book, uh, in the gospel. So Jesus says, whoever does the will of God uh, is my brother and sister and mother. So at the time that this gospel of Mark was released, you just have to know that James, one of Jesus' brothers, had now assumed leadership over the church in Jerusalem. Mary had been given uh, basically a position of honor in the culture. Uh, And it's important to know that because right now the readers are like, wait, we know that these people have positions of honor, but here in the book, it really seems that they're not in with Jesus. That's important. That's what Mark is pointing out. And it's basically that there's no family proximity. There's no just being like close to Jesus that makes you in with Jesus. Uh, You can't just, no one can assume the position of being in with Jesus. And this is actually really, really good news for you today and for us. And like for everyone over the past 2,000 years. Because a relationship with Jesus and adoption with G, uh, to his family is something that's offered to, like Jesus said, whoever does the will of God. Uh, and I just want to remind you, uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we heard when Jesus called the 12 apostles in Mark 3, uh, 9, uh, 13 through 19, he called them to a new identity, a new family, a new community gathered around who he was. And they answered that call. So the call that Jesus is making is going beyond direct family. And what we're seeing here, it's not about family ties. It's not about proximity to Jesus. It's not about how you're raised, who you're raised with. It's about faith, trust, and full commitment to Jesus. And so in trust in his work and faith in his salvation, 
This is where we fulfill the will of God, and then we can gather together with this new extended family that shares the common identity of community gathered around who Jesus is, community that's pointing to Jesus instead of pointing to our own desires, our own traditions, our, our own uh, wants, our expectations. And all of this sounds so good. It's, it's what we want. It's what our hearts desire. It's like our day-to-day, our hearts win, our sinful heart wins, and we're like, our desires are all about us. But we're made to be pointing to Jesus. And so when, when this all falls apart is basically when we look at two different groups of people. There's J.R. Edwards says, there are only two kinds of people, those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet and those who stand on the outside with false assumptions. So you might be here right now and you're actually wrestling, you're hearing all these things, you're wrestling with false assumptions that you brought in with you today. You've heard things like uh, uh, speaking from the, the pulpit, this music stand. Uh, Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus is the only way. You're like, mm, that doesn't sit well with me uh, because it's really not culturally appropriate to say there's only one way. This morning I was preaching in uh, Verdun, uh, not, sorry, not Verdun, with Verdun and NDG in NDG, and they have a unity center that, like, where we're renting, and the whole vision of that group is that all religions and all paths point to the same place. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the only way. And so you might be wrestling with that, saying, like, this doesn't sit well with me. Uh, and if you can gather anything from this passage, even in Jesus' time, his teachings were not viewed as culturally appropriate. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was the only, the, Jesus is the only way, and this is not something even when Jesus was on earth that people accepted easily. And so then we look at this whole like paradox where we're talking about how like we don't like having expectations put on us. We don't like getting the label of like we've disappointed our friends and our family when we don't make decisions that line up with their desires. And then honestly, what we do is we go and we say to Jesus, I want you to conform to what I think would look right for my culture today. I want your teachings to conform to something that our culture wants. And so you're placing your own expectations on Jesus, and it's very clear that this is not what Jesus is about. He is the only way. He teaches truth. He is the truth. And this, this position, this posture, like we talked about earlier, there's the posture of the crowd around Jesus. This posture keeps us on the outside. So I encourage you to wrestle with these questions and engage with these questions and don't just write off Jesus. You have to think about why is he making these absolute statements, these, these statements that he's the only way, uh, the only truth. Uh, and then there's, there's this also this other problem where we might see ourselves, we're, we're like, we're here, we made it out today, we're sitting at Jesus' feet, we're in with Jesus. Uh, but then it all falls apart because we're sinful and we try to experience this, this identity, this family on our own terms. We, we fall into the trap about making things about us. We're like, okay, it's like I need people to serve me. I want it to be about me. It's my desires, my will. And then you're like, hey, Jesus, come over and join me in my thing that I'm doing. And so all this is bad news. All this falls apart. And the good news is that Jesus, he didn't live like that. <laughs> That's the good news. Jesus lived perfectly uh, in line with the will of God. Jesus loved perfectly. And even if his direct family, when they were like, he was on earth, when he was ministering, they didn't believe it. They were like, no, you don't love us. He loved them by obeying God's will. And in obeying God's will, it led him to giving his life on the cross for his family. 
And so I just want you to know today that Jesus loved you. Even in, the, even in your mind, you might be thinking, no, he doesn't fit into the cultural norms. He doesn't fit in the cultural expectations. He didn't love you by fitting in. He loved you by obeying God and then giving his life for you. And Jesus' death and resurrection, it is the basis for full acceptance and forgiveness before God the Father. So it's not about who you are, what you do. It's by faith that we're forgiven. And, it's, and then that is how we're accepted and we belong to this new family that Jesus is talking about in this passage. And in John 1.12, it says, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. So just again, family proximity our own efforts, they're insufficient. They don't add up. The receiving that the Bible is talking about is complete trust and acceptance of the work of Jesus on your behalf. And so this is a personal choice for everyone. Just because mom and dad believe in Jesus doesn't mean that you, by proximity, are in with Jesus. You have to engage with this decision. And so I want to jump back to this family narrative. Like I said, the skipping stone. The last time we see that stone hit the water in this story of uh, Jesus and his family was when Jesus was actually on the cross and he brought a conclusion to all of this. He summed it up. When in John 19, 26 to 27, Jesus was on the cross and he saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there and he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And so we can understand that Jesus is talking to Mary and most likely talking to John. Mary is not John's mom, but in the final work of Jesus on the cross, he's bringing a conclusion to all of this, to this teaching, to this out of the ordinary, against the cultural norms and traditions, new covenant identity, family bond that he has been creating by obeying the will of the Father. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he cuts through the cultural norms and the family traditions in his final work on the cross, God fully accepts the work of Jesus on, on behalf of his family, on behalf of those that were there, on behalf of you. And now, in believing in the work of Jesus, you can be called a son or a daughter of, of God. And this changes identity. This changes family ties. And so I know that, like, looking around this room, I know that Jesus could be here today and say, here are my brothers and sisters, because there are people here who have accepted the work of Jesus on their behalf and now have received that identity of being called a child of God. But it did seem that there was like a condition. And it's, and it's important to understand what Jesus means when he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And I want to clarify this because I grew up with an understanding that you had to work to earn your place before God. You had to be, you had to earn acceptance from God. And so when you hear things like this, do the will of God, or this is the work of God, I'm like, okay, I got, I got to do this. And Jesus is not saying that. And in John 6, 29, uh, Jesus, he's, he's just in response to a group of people who are saying, like, what is the work that we have to do? We need to earn our place. We have to do this work. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. All of those laws, all of those, like, um, the commandments, they're to show you that you can't earn God's forgiveness. You can't earn that status of perfection. And I have come and done it for you. Jesus came and did it for you. And your only work, and it is a big work for a lot of people, because we're like, in our hearts, we want to earn stuff. 
We don't like we don't like the free handouts because we want to earn it. And it and so Jesus is offering us all of the work he's done on our behalf. And so when you believe this, when you believe that Jesus has done the work on your behalf, this is when you receive that new identity. And so this is the question you have to wrestle with. Are you willing to receive the work that Jesus has done on your behalf? When you believe this, when you receive this, you receive a new identity, a, reorienta- a reorientation of your life that prior- like priorities are now no longer about your own things. They're not about family ties. They're about God. And Jesus was part of a large biological family. He had like at least six brothers and sisters, yet he saw his spiritual family as primary. And so he showed us what it looked like to live in perfect obedience to God, but then through the help of his Holy Spirit that he gives to those who believe and receive, he enables us to then start living more like him and less like the way we live on our own. Less judgment, less imposing of our own desires on people. What happens is when you gather with Jesus as the focus, when every party is about Jesus, when every party is about pointing, back, pointing each other back to Jesus, you'll find that your posture is going to change. Remember the crowd that showed up? They were so about their own selfish desires that Jesus was in danger of getting crushed. That happens today. When we make it about us, Jesus is like left at the door. He doesn't get to come into the party. But when we gather around our identity that Jesus has given us uh, in his work on our behalf, our, our posture changes and our desires change. And the purpose of gathering is to mature together and point each other towards God's will for our life, which is to point each other towards Jesus, to celebrate the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. And I just want to just encourage you just from a personal testimony of what this looks like, okay? Uh, I've been a believer uh, for most of my life. And uh, for those who know me well, I'm very laid back. It takes a lot for me to get like stressed out. It takes a lot for me to get very like, you know, worked up. And uh, maybe you can relate to me, but in the past 15 months, I haven't been feeling all, at all times, my normal, calm, cool, and collected self. And there was this time that I like really felt this anxiety. And I'm like, not growing up with a lot of anxiety, I'm like, what do I do with anxiety? Like, I don't know how to manage this well. It doesn't fit into like what I know about myself. And so I was like, okay, my approach for dealing with anxiety, I'm going to cut out caffeine, and I'm going to drop down and do push-ups when, I, when I'm feeling this buildup of anxiety. And so I uh, it really was not helping, to be honest. It didn't, it didn't serve the purpose I thought it would serve. And it took a brother in Christ to come and point me back towards Jesus. Uh, it took a, like, someone that was not my biological brother, but that brother that's been brought to me because of the work of Jesus to say, like, it looks a lot like you want to control things. Why do you want to control things? And that, is that where the anxiety is coming from? I'm like, yeah, I feel like the world's out of control. Can anyone relate to me? Like in the past 15 months, the things look like it's a little out of control. And he's like, is it possible that you feel like you want to control these things? That anxiety about not being able to control is coming from a deeper belief or an unbelief, in a sense, that God has lost control. He's impotent. And if you were to like start off with that and be like, hey, Trenton, you have anxiety. It sure looks like you believe God's lost control and he's impotent. I'd be like, I don't believe that. But the fruit of my like the fruit that was coming out, that my anxiety, that was pointing to a deeper unbelief. And it turns out that like caffeine deprivation, frantic push-ups, they're not actually the solution to anxiety for me in my situation. And I know there's a vast variety of, of different uh, struggles that we all live. But in my situation, 
The answer was repentance because I was believing a lie about God. And it took a brother in Christ to point me back to the truth that God is in control, that Jesus has done everything on my behalf that I can't do for myself. There's no work that I have to accomplish for myself other than believing in the work of Jesus. And you know what replaced my anxiety? Peace. This is the beauty of the family and, uh, that Jesus offers to us in his work. It's family that points us back towards Jesus and that uproots those bad fruits and re- replants the fruits of the Spirit. And I got to experience that. Uh, and it's, we all need this. We do. We really need this. because, And Jesus knew this to be true. And this, this part of the gospel that we're honing in on, this was part of what Jesus was thinking about when he was on the cross, giving his life so you could receive salvation, a restored relationship with God, and you would be given a family of people that would constantly be pointing you back to what you've received in Jesus. And so in, in closing, all of this points to a really clear challenge, uh, a, a conclusion. It's with whom are you living as family? And is your family pointing you to Jesus? That's the question here uh, in our passage. And Jesus, he's not saying cut all ties with biological, biological family, cut all ties with those who are closest to you, those who are like you'd call your brothers and sisters just because you spend so much time together. Jesus is just calling you to see your spiritual family as primary and to see time with those who point you to Jesus as primary. Uh, and I love my biological family. I, I, I also have the privilege to call them my spiritual family. And uh, they live about seven hours away. I was like calling Evan to come to Quebec forever. And now I've succeeded. Now I can have biological family and spiritual family in Montreal. But the reality is that when all my family were living seven hours away, they didn't have the overlap in my life in the day-to-day to speak the truth uh, that I needed to hear, to point me back to Jesus when I needed to be point to Je- pointed to Jesus. And I didn't know to ask for it. And so here's some things. Like the, the beauty is that I have that family in the church that I'm a part of, in Church 21. And this is when we miss out on, the, on what Jesus has been uh, pointing us towards. We miss out on this uh, when, I know there's many believers here who've been believers for many years, and you approach finding a family, finding your spiritual family, like speed dating. You come to the church, and you're very critical. You're like, huh, it's in a basement. Huh, the music isn't how I thought it would be. Huh, I had to wear a mask. Oh man, the preacher, he seems like a pastoral apprentice that's still learning. And, it's, and you're very critical. And then this is, this is your posture when you're, in, when you're considering engagement in family in Christ. And I would just challenge you on that. It doesn't seem like that's what Jesus is pointing us towards to be critical about. What Jesus is saying to be critical about is to ask the question, is this a family of brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to point me towards Jesus. And also, there could be people that come in with an unrealistic expectation, and then that keeps them uh, from getting to experience that, uh, the family that Jesus is calling us to. There's an unrealistic expectation that you're never going to get hurt by a spiritual family. Well, if Jesus, like if that was real, like we wouldn't need spiritual family because we'd all be perfect. We need spiritual family because we mess up we sin, we are selfish, we hurt the ones that are closest to us. And the, you know, like, you might be hurt by someone sitting in this room, and maybe it's you that Jesus is calling to point that person back to himself. And that's the beauty of what Jesus is, is presenting to us today. And then the, the last thing that keeps us from 
uh, getting to engage with what Jesus has bought for us, this family, is just a lack of commitment. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. When you don't invest uh, and you don't commit and you don't emotionally uh, give yourself to being a part of a family, then you're always going to be transitioning. You're always going to be looking for the greener grass and you're always going to be looking for the group of people that actually meet Jesus' requirements of spiritual family. And when you find that family, you're going to commit. And listen, I want to challenge you because Jesus is saying that if you find a group of people that say, Jesus, you've done all the work that I can't do. You've done that on my behalf. And I'm going to spend my life pointing those around me back to you. If you found a group like, of people like that, you found the requirements of spiritual family that Jesus is pointing you towards. And I know that that's true right now in the room that we're sitting in. I know that you have family. You, have, you can look around and say, I have brothers and sisters who are my spiritual family in this room. And so in Church 21, I, this, is, this is not a condemnation. This is not uh, a guilt and a shame I'm putting on you. This is a celebration. You don't have to look anymore. You don't have to keep yourself from committing. You don't have to be critical. You can open yourself to community and you can know that when hurt comes, that Jesus is there to help you be pointed back to him and to help you point others back to him. And so we heard this already just in the announcements that in our context, the way that this is lived out isn't just on Sundays. It's in the week. It's in the everyday stuff of life. It's in city group that we get to live out our identity as family. So a very clear question is, are you part of a city group? And if yes, can you just like list through in your head the names of the people that you would call your family that are part of that city group? And my challenge to you this week is to spend as much time with those people as possible. Make that your priority. Set aside everything else that you think is important and invest some time this week into what this passage where Jesus is telling us your spiritual family is important. It takes priority over a lot of things because I've bought it for you with my blood. And if you're not connected to a city group, a very simple response to this passage today to Jesus' teaching is to talk to like Stephen, Evan, Dwight, and be like, how do I get connected to a city group? Because I kind of think that what Jesus is pointing me to is the thing that I should be doing. And so I just want to, to challenge you with that, to leave you with that, and to celebrate that because of Jesus, we can live in this, in this identity of saying, my mother and my brother and my sister, they don't support my faith, but I have a brother and a sister in Christ that can put me, point me towards Jesus every day of the week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you uh, so much that you sent your son Jesus and that Jesus, he was completely successful where we fall short in, uh, in meeting your requirements of perfection and that we, through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we can be given that forgiveness, that restoration in our relationship with you and then we are also given, uh, through the work of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters here on earth that are uh, gathering together in community with one focus, which is you, Jesus. So I pray that every birthday party, every gathering, every conversation would be built on a foundation of you being the best, (laughs) that we're celebrating you, Jesus. And I pray that um, as we go uh, out of this room this week, that this could be something that might be out of the ordinary, but that we would prioritize. We'd prioritize spending time 
with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and I thank you that um, in your work, this is just something that we have access to. And so I just pray that you'd be with us the rest of this uh, time of response we have together today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.